Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. One of the oldest works of science fiction, many people would call it the first work of science fiction, and a story that has been told and retold and retold again, both under its actual name and in other versions, is the story of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. In just a few weeks, we have yet another Frankenstein movie coming out, Lisa Frankenstein. Uh, as I've come to understand, this is a what is now being referred to as a coming-of-rage movie, it, in the same idea as Megan's Body and other things like that. I don't know too many of the details, but it was a good reminder to me that Frankenstein is such a foundational story for so many of the kind of things we talk about in this podcast. I had never actually read the book. Uh, Danielle wrote in the Star Wars. We keep finding new things she has expertise in, but she mentioned that she had done her doctoral work in uh, the literature of uh, 18th and 19th century England, particularly in terms of um, comics and the like, but also had a lot of experience with other parts of literature. And so when I said, hey, I would actually love to do something on the book Frankenstein, uh, Danielle was willing to, to step up. So Danielle, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love Mary Shelley. Um, she was actually uh, has a little section in my thesis, not for Frankenstein, but one of her other works, The Last Man. Um, but I read Frankenstein first when I was like 16 years old. And um, I don't know if I appreciated it as much as I should have back then. Um, uh -huh. But the more I interacted with it, the older I got, the more I, I understood some of the themes a little bit better. And I really enjoy nice. it now. Nice. Well, and for those of you who haven't read the book, don't worry about it. This is kind of going to be two things. One is it's going to be an introduction to the book itself and the very – I mean, it is a book tailor-made for superhero ethics. It's very much an exploration of scientific ethics and, and all sorts of things around that and, you know, questions that are fundamental to science fiction in general. But also we're going to talk about why is it that – because I, I had always gotten a sense that the story is misunderstood – but reading the book, it was vastly different than even I was expecting. And so we're going to talk a lot about why that is, that this book is so different than how it's perceived in general culture, or even by those who think they're kind of doing more like accurate takes on it and stuff like that. So, Danielle, let me first just get started with, tell us a little bit more about your background with the literature of this period and, and works like Frankenstein. Uh, well, I have um, an undergrad degree in English literature, and a lot of the classes I took for that were uh, 18th, 19th century uh, British literature. Mm -hmm. And then I have a um, master's degree in book publishing, and my project for that was um, actually doing a, an edited version of a 18th century novel, British novel that came out. And so mm -hmm. even though it wasn't Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or, or any of her works at all. It was from an earlier period. It did get me into the the art of kind of revitalizing old texts mm -hmm. and um, dealing with them and how to how to explain them, I guess, in a way that the the modern reader would understand. And right. then my PhD thesis was on um, the literature of that period from a mm -hmm. more visual perspective, but. I did have to inter interact with some of the the textual aspects of it and how how the textual and the visual kind of meet in the in the middle, and so right. when I say that I dealt with Mary Shelley a bit for my thesis, it was because the periodical that I centered my thesis around called the Glasgow Looking Glass, um, it was a caricature periodical and a visual caricature, so it was kind of like the early comic strips, and. Mm. Um, one image they have in there is a, an image making fun of Mary Shelley's The Last Man. And um, in the process, they end up making a lot of um, racist, uh, using a lot of racist stereotypes because they have a, mm -hmm. a black woman depicted as the last woman instead of the last man. And mm -hmm. it was just a jab, a jab at multiple different people and things. And that's kind of got me more involved in Mary Shelley's life. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. And tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> what what to say about Mary Shelley other than she was – it should be considered still to this day the mother of science fiction. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the, if not the earliest examples of a science fiction book. And it pains me every time I see people say that <laughs> some man who came along later was actually mm-hmm. was the father of science fiction. Like, yeah, maybe, but she was the mother and she came first. Yeah. <laughs> and what's so interesting about her life, I think, is just that she surrounded herself by literary people and her husband was mm-hmm. Percy Shelley and um, her friends were uh, like Lord Byron and, mm-hmm. and several others who were very literary. Her father himself was also her mother uh, was one of the early feminists of, mm-hmm. of our, of the age. And um, she came from a very literate background and she continued that throughout, throughout her life. But, her life is just, I don't know how to say it. It's kind of sad. I mean, mm-hmm. people know, I don't know if people know that Percy died in a shipwreck. Um, and she had children with him who also died. I think they only had one surviving child. But he also, their relationship was very, like, open, kind of. And and right. there there are, there's some confusion about how happy she was about that. Whether or mm-hmm. not she liked that or whether or not she didn't. And whether it was him kind of controlling that and wanting to to live that life and forcing it on her or whether she went along with it willingly. Mm. And there's a book I read recently called um, Mary or the Birth of Frankenstein. And it's kind of a fictionalized account of her life during the time where mm. Frankenstein was conceptualized. And it is kind of told through like the perspective of when she was younger and then when she was uh, coming up with Frankenstein. And it's very interesting. I learned a lot about her that I didn't know, but it all comes to the point of it her life just being remarkable, but also tragic. Yeah. And I think that's I reflected so much in Frankenstein. Um, one thing I, I know much less about her than you do, but first one thing, just to kind of help ground this for people, uh, when the age we're talking about is kind of the early part of the 19th century. The book is first published in 1818. Uh, and one thing I've come to know about her is not only is she the mother of science fiction, but in many ways she's kind of the original goth. I mean, forgetting <laughs> about the goth tribes. She was deeply fascinated by death. Um, as you pointed out, there are a lot of different stories about her sexuality and how much was her choice and how much was others. But uh, one of the prevailing stories about her – I don't know if this is historically exactly accurate – but I think the fact that it was considered a very believable story says a lot of her interest in death is that she had her first sexual encounter – in a cemetery on her mother's grave um, and spoke positively about it. Um, Like it was not meant as a like, you know, get back at her mother, but a communing with of some sort. Um, And I think that really comes out in this book because obviously this book is very much about the attempt to overcome death um, and and what that means and the ethics of that and things like that. And one of the things I think that – It's sort of weird because I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about the book and about the conversations around the book. And so part of me feels like we should just get to explaining the book itself. And I want to start with this because I I think there is so much confusion about it. And tell me if I'm correct in this. One of the things that I think really marks the book is, for the most part, it is told from Frankenstein's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of. It is a collect – the book is in theory a collection of letters in which a – British sea captain is writing to, I think, his sister, and then he explains how bored he is, how much he wants a true friend, and then he explains that this guy Frankenstein comes along, and then he writes this, like, 200-page letter in which he says, and now here's everything Frankenstein told to me. And in the course of that, Frankenstein dictates word for word letters that were written to him. So there are letters within letters within letters within this book. Um, But I... And, you know, one of the biggest questions is always about, like, who is the monster in this book? Is it the the monster that Frankenstein creates with monster there in quotes, or is it Frankenstein himself? And I was really trying hard to try and read this through the eyes of someone writing it at the time, not as I would look back on it now. But obviously, I can't separate that bias out entirely. But where I'm going with all this is that it, it feels to me like one of the main points of the book is that Frankenstein is himself a deeply unreliable narrator. And that as the reader, we're meant to not only judge Frankenstein by what he actually says, but to pick up all of the clues and to figure out there's a lot of ways in which his descriptions of things, particularly the morality of it, 
is, is are things that we shouldn't necessarily take word for word because he because we are supposed to be seeing the flaws in him and his you know megal megal megalomania is the wrong word but you know just his his very kind of self-serving version of the narrative in some ways is, is that accurate and does that fit kind of uh, is this a literary style that would have made sense at the time or was this kind of a really revolutionary thing I think it's it's kind of both um well I have to, I can't answer this without going back to the fact that um or stating the fact that Frankenstein was published anonymously um mm. at first and so um I think a lot of credit was given to Percy and people didn't really know like it was it was confusing at first and right. um sorry I lost my train of thought just on that quickly (laughs) i'm correct that was not uncommon like jane austen also was published anonymously right because the idea of a woman writing these things was not well regarded at that time no lots of women published under their own names um okay but you did have occasionally um at times it would be published just anonymously for various reasons um and and so occasionally you'd have a female author who chose to publish anonymously, and you also have male authors who did the same. Um, okay. So, for example, there's a, a book that came out in early 19th century before Frankenstein called The Scottish Chiefs, and mm. that was published anonymously, and the person who got credit for it, or the person that people tried to put the credit on, was um, uh, Sir Walter Scott. And okay. then eventually Jane Porter, who was the actual author, uh, she had the mm-hmm. book published again under her name. And then, of course, then it started getting a lot of criticisms that it didn't get when Sir Walter Scott was thought to have been the right. writer. So so you have a lot of various reasons for doing it, but um, there were other female authors who published under their own names. It just, you know, there were give and takes to it. Yeah, but and some of them did make uh, have a little bit of a career out of it too. Um, but mm. yeah, so it was various off of that. But with Mary Shelley, to go back to to the original point, is that it was kind of revolutionary and it was also pretty standard. A lot mm. of early nineteenth century novels deal heavily with letters. A lot of Jane Austen novels deal with letters. Um, and so that kind of meta style of, of like, what is a letter, what isn't, is is pretty mm-hmm. common for the time. But the perspective is is interesting. And I, would, I don't know if I would say that that in itself is revolutionary, but I do agree with your point of it being um, that he is an unreliable narrator. And I think that that's absolutely mm-hmm. the truth because I think even – through his narration, even though it's biased and unreliable, you can still tell that the monster isn't really a monster. Like he's yeah. a monster in in name, but he's also a human. He's this he's this being that has been created and then been left to fend for himself and yeah. with with no care, no guidance from his creator. And he loves his creator when he's first. Uh, welcomed into this world and to see his creator absolutely terrified of him and not wanting to have anything to do with him is uh is i think the the revolutionary part of this story and you can you can see that so much in the narration even when it's not from his perspective and that to me is is very very mary shelley and her her uh her pain and a lot of her experiences Mm -hmm. coming through that monster is like you've created this yeah. thing and i now this is my own in- interpretation of it i don't really i haven't uh-huh. read a lot about you know criticism about mary or you know literary essays about mary shelley's works but um i i do see it as kind of like reflective of her relationships with other people in her life like maybe she viewed herself a little bit as the monsters like you created this mm-hmm. you created me and you've just left right. me to go and and yeah. and no one to care for me, and then there's also the- theories about it being partially about her child who died um, mm. when she was just an infant, and how like she's created this thing and and it's just gone off, and yeah. she spends the rest of her life like kind of looking for it and and never finding it. Yeah. Well, so let's let's go into the actual story itself, and I'll kind of give a my best version of a brief summary of it, and then we can talk about these details uh, for sure. So, because I think as you listen to this, for those of you who haven't read the book, if you mostly know the story through like the original movies or some of the kind of 
parody or, you know, like versions of it, like Young Frankenstein, Frankenstein uh, by the great Mel Brooks or, you know, other ways where the story has been retold again and again. Some of this is going to sound familiar. Some of this may sound very different. So we open, as I said, with this Captain Walton who's, who has been writing letters to his sister. He encounters this person who, uh, not to like the third letter about him, do we learn that he is actually Dr. Frankenstein. Or he's not a doctor. He's a student. Um, Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein, who is uh, German-Austrian. He is from Geneva. Um, he has been – he was very smart. He grew up in kind of a nice middle-class home. And he's very interested in – he's kind of like the bad boy scientist of a more modern sci-fi story, you know, in that he is very bored by conventional study. He wants to study the unconventional. And among other things, he's very interested in death, and he believes that he can un- he can undo death. He comes to believe that. And and here's some ways where it's interesting how this is both kind of the creation of science fiction, but there are a lot of science fiction tropes that clearly haven't been invented yet. Um, because I was expecting like multiple chapters on him trying to figure out a way to do this and then there being problems and there being that one great breakthrough moment where he figures out how to do it and is he's so nervous and will it happen – there's none of that. Uh, there's none of the, like, he he admits that he basically sews this body together from body parts found in graves, but that's done very, it, it's a very kind of blink and you miss it when you think about the real horror of that. And there's no Igor. There's no, like, bolt of lightning that has to hit the machinery to power everything. All of that apparently are later additions to the stories. He just does it. And uh, according to his narrative, he attempts to make a human being that's even more beautiful than the normal human being. Like, he doesn't make this to look monstrous. And it is when he creates that human being, although who's, like, even more so, and is also, like, much much taller than the average human being, the being comes to life, and it opens its eyes. And it is simply by looking at its eyes and seeing this, like, yellow, and then he casts it in very sort of demonic, devilish light, that he immediately knows it's a monster, and he immediately runs away. Um, and I think we're supposed to, and what you just said kind of, uh, reinforces this, think that, like, how could you do, like, how, we're supposed to judge him in that moment of, like, how could you possibly think that, like, just because of the color of its eye, it was so horrible and monstrous, etc. Um, and here again, if you're expecting that, like, so the monster breaks out and tries to fight him, no, like, the, the monster doesn't appear again until two years later, when he is... He was studying somewhere else, but he's gone back to Geneva to be with his family, um, in part because one thing they found out is that his little brother has been killed. And his uh, a good friend of the family named Justine is – everyone thinks that she's committed the murder. Um, there's some stuff about how she is described that really I think is not necessarily social commentary as much just we can read it as a, huh, those were the times, I guess, <laughs> because she's from a poorer family and she's taken in kind of like a ward, but is also then expected to be a servant. And that's treated as very charitable that they train her to be a servant. And I I was reading that today like, eh, at some level of charity slash child labor. Okay, fine. Um, but she is believed to be the murder, murderer. Uh, meanwhile, there's a character named Elizabeth who is – has also been adopted by the family and raised. Um, in the original version of the book, she is his cousin – which, again, is sort of a, like, interesting eyebrow-raising today because his mother explicitly says he wants these two to grow up and be in love and be married to each other. Uh, apparently, in later versions published a few years later, the fact that she was a cousin is removed. Uh, so this was uh, – you can say whatever you want to say about that. Uh, but the point is that the cousin's very upset. The the His, like, paramour in the future is very upset. And Frankenstein is the only one who realizes that this murder must have been committed by the monster. Um, And so he goes through things. He thinks about telling someone. He doesn't think anyone will believe him. And so Justine winds up being executed um, because there's nothing that she can do. And there's some harrowing stuff about how much the church harasses her during this, forcing her to confess. But he does nothing. He goes to try and continue his studies, but he's haunted by this. Um, and eventually he is, he comes into a confrontation with the monster. And if you're expecting now the Frankenstein monster that just goes like, rah, rah, you know, I, 
oh, help me. That is 100% not what it is. The monster is incredibly eloquent, um, speaks in just as many why use one word when you can use five uh, <laughs> phrases that uh, Frankenstein himself uses, which I, I, have, I have a question later about if this is a Charles Dickens kind of thing of you get paid by the word um, or that's just the style of the times. But he's very eloquent and he really kind of lays out this case against Frankenstein of, as you said, I woke up and I loved you and I wanted to love you, but you abandoned me. And then he, he tells this harrowing story of how he went off into the woods to try and hide and he eventually sort of found this family, and apparently he has like plus 20 on his stealth rolls as well as plus 25 on his eavesdropping rolls <laughs> because he's able to hide from this refugee family while listening to all their conversations. We learn an incredible, I think very unnecessary, but maybe it's important for foreshadowing detail, detail about why this family are refugees and that there's a blind old man and that Frankenstein's creation starts to think that if I can talk to that blind man, he will be able to help me because I've come to think of all these people as my friends. He won't see my monstrosity. He'll be able to see past that and see the real me, see that I'm not a monster, and and hopefully that I'll be fine. And he has a good conversation with the father. They're almost about to break through when the son comes back in and just goes like, oh my God, this is a monster. He's attacking my father. What can I do? And uh, Frankenstein's creation makes a point to say that he does not fight back. He just goes off into the, you know, he hides, he takes the blows, but it's a real sort of mental shattering moment for him. And so he goes off into the woods and and resolves that he will have revenge upon Frankenstein. Um, and at this point now we have uh, not only the first science fiction and the first goth, but also the first vi villain origin story where we have a lot of sympathy for the villain, but he then goes off the deep end. Um and the, and he goes to Frankenstein, and at the end of this, he says, like, I will I will stop killing your family. I will stop har targeting you if you will just make me a partner, make me a wife, uh, another dead creation like me that you bring to life. And then the two of us will go off into the wildness of the world, never to be seen by mortal man again, and everything will be fine. And Frankenstein almost creates this creature – uh, but then he sees the the monster of the creation again at the very end, decides he can't, destroys the body, at which point Frankenstein's creation, you know, is like, okay, well, we can't do this. And more people are killed. And eventually um, the they chase each other around the world. Eventually we get to the Arctic Circle, uh, which is where Frankenstein finally meets Walton and the circle has now come all the way around and tells Walton the whole tale and says, I am about to die. But you must finish off the monster. And in classic 18th century literature style, Frankenstein then – or 19th century literature style, Frankenstein then just dies of exhaustion, uh, a broken heart, whatever you want to call it, um, being a wronged woman, I think is another <laughs> description of that disease in 19th century literature. And then the monster winds up uh, killing himself as well. And so Walton is now relaying this whole sad, tragic story to his sister. Uh, did I miss out on anything? Is that a pretty good uh, – a lot of details I missed, obviously, but uh, does that – you think that gives a clear picture of the story? No, that's a really great summary. Yeah. Yeah. So l let me just start with kind of the more lighthearted question and then get into the actual details of it. I, this book is incredibly wordy. Yeah. All, <laughs> none of it feels to me the way actual people would talk to each other. And I don't know if that is just because – those were the dialects and the sort of linguistic tropes people used at the time to, or to what extent it was somewhat expected in literature, either because literature was supposed to be more high-minded and more like poetic or because of the sort of Charles Dickens way it's being published in periodicals and people are being paid by the word. So they add as many words as they can. Yeah, I think it's a little mixture. Um, it's definitely like her style of writing – the wordiness is not uncommon during the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. There, it was, it was just like that. And how much it has to do with it needing to be wordy to fill space and also to, um, depending on how they would get paid, um, is up to debate. Uh, but I do know that serialized publishing was very popular during that time. 
And so what you would have is either, like with Dickens, sometimes it would originally be published in periodicals, uh, short sections, and then eventually put into books. Other times it would be published uh, in volumes. So Mm -hmm. like the Scottish Chiefs I mentioned earlier um, has nothing to do with this, but it was published within like three or four volumes. And the amount of volumes, what's interesting during this time is the amount of volumes could change per edition. So Mm. like... A first edition of something, the first time it was printed, uh, could have two volumes. And then when it's published a second time, it could have three and so on and so forth. And things would change between them as well. It's not as, um, uh, at, it, it wasn't as kind of standardized as it is now. And yeah, yeah so it, it really is up to debate, but I will say the dialogue itself is not that different from other works of the time. So it really is just kind of like, you know. It's a, it's a product of its time. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what do you think Mary Shelley is saying with this book? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I am always struck when I first read it, I guess, or maybe like the second time when I actually kind of understood it a little bit more. Um, I'm just always struck by how tragic uh, the monster or the creation's life is and, yeah. and how, how prominent that is to the story. Uh, and and you can just feel like the sadness of it. And mm-hmm. if you see, there are uh, plays, uh, theater adaptations of the book, and probably mm-hmm. the most well known is the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, he and I forget the other actor's name, but he also played Sherlock in the U.S. Elementary mm-hmm. show. Uh, they switched roles like every night. So one oh, night amazing. one of them would play the monster, the other night the other one would play the monster, and. That was probably for me the first time that I really hit like got the emotional aspect of it to the extreme that I did is that, but they're all they're using the same stuff from the book. So it's it's all there. Yeah. Um it's just the monster's life is so tragic and I really think that that he is the like truly kind of like a not really a villain of this story. He's he yeah. he's the product of his creation, of his creator. Truly, yeah. I think he is maybe Frankenstein sees the worst of himself in this and he can't face it. And that's why he mm-hmm. abandons it. And and that it maybe like the creation is a reflection of ourselves. And, and originally it is the, the most pure reflection of ourselves. And I think maybe that is a little bit of what she was getting at. Maybe a little like self self-reflection and mm. and how we we can take all of our trauma and all of our the things that have happened to us and create something like that and view it as a monster but it's not really a monster if it's a part of us yeah yeah i mean one thing i'm really struck by is i think how frankenstein himself victor is so self-delusional really in a lot of ways not in a kind of like he's seeing little green men or something but in terms of he frames things where, you know, it, it's uh, if anyone's had the experience where you're talking to a friend and you're like, oh, my God, can you believe what my girlfriend just did to me? All I did was like, you know, leave her by the side of the road with all of her clothes <laughs> and drive off. And now she's so mad at me and I just don't get it. And you're like, dude, of course they're mad at you. And like <clears throat> to me, he tells this harrowing story of how, you know, his creation is very clear, clearly saying I only became vicious and murderous because of all these things that happened to me. But the thing that's – so by that understanding, like this seems a pretty clear like nurture versus nature idea. Mm-hmm. So by that understanding, creating this Bride of Frankenstein, uh, which is a very misnomer and kind of shows already the like we're calling Frankenstein the wrong thing, let alone all the gender politics of I'm creating a female version of you, so of course she's going to fall in love with you, and of course she's <laughs> going to want to go off into the woods with you. But putting all that aside, there's absolutely no reason to believe that if you create this second you know, creation, that she will turn out to also be murderous, especially if she has shown love and welcoming and acceptance from day one. Mm-hmm. And yet he can't think that way. Mm-hmm. Because his whole model of his own goodness is predicated on the idea that he recognized the evil in this creature, not that he had anything to do with it. And I I just thought that was so striking that he can't – he, in a way that I think is very familiar to a lot of us. And I know I've been guilty of this at times and and I think it's a very big part of gaslighting, for example. Like um, often the people who are the best gaslighters, the first person they gaslight is themselves. Mm -hmm. 
and that feels what Frankenstein is doing here, you know, and that he he cannot allow the overwhelming evidence in front of him to convince him that maybe he was wrong that night to just run out. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I I kind of hold so much with the idea of, of um, the creation being like a, an intricate part of ourselves, of, of mm-hmm. being a metaphor for the for the what we create from our, our pain and, and our experiences. And if we just abandon it, like what does that do to the world and to, or to our world anyway? And just on a, on a much, you know, larger scale. Um, yeah. But I I love the the fact that when the creation wants a company, he wants a bride. He wants he wants a, a partner. Because mm. the first place he goes when he runs off is 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 to the the little farmhouse uh, where they mm. don't know he's there, but he's watching them and that's what he sees is is love, is acceptance, mm. is this yeah. uh, this family unit. And and he wants that, and I think that's why he's yeah. so determined that his happiness will come from from that. But he's seen that it can't come from regular people, regular humans, because they don't like the way he looks. They're scared of him. Right. So it has to come from someone who looks like him, or who yeah. who has the same um, you know quote unquote abnormalities as him. And yeah. and because then he'll be accepted automatically because he'll accept her and. Yeah. And yeah, and so I, I love that, that that it makes sense that that is what he would want and, and yeah. just not think of anything else because, of course, like these people don't accept me. These humans don't mm-hmm. accept me, but but this person who is created literally in my image, <laughs> you know, my yeah. as like me, then will accept me, which well, ironically was probably also what Frankenstein was thinking and creating yeah. it and that he would could play God and this creature would would bow down to him and he probably would have if he had stayed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love that point particularly about the wife because when when it, the simple fact that we're like going back and forth and calling it Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's creation is I think also brilliant of Mary Shelley because much to my frustration, it, he's never given a name, yeah. you know? And I, I almost said it's because I think that's often how we describe it. It's the monster. Uh, but he is a sentient being. He's a person in that regard, if not human necessarily. Um, and to not name it is so frustrating to talk about, but I think that's part of the whole point. But but to get back to it, the the little cottage that he goes to, he sees a family. It's a multi-generational family. And he sees that there's a young man and a young woman who are family and that they they love each other, their their husband and wife. And also there's a father figure. And the father loves 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 them. And there's also a sister um who's involved there as well. And and so I think for Franken for for Frankenstein's creation, part of why he fixates on a wife is that at first he was also thinking a father could love me. And Frankenstein is he very explicitly says, Frankenstein, you are my father, and his father rejects him. Mm-hmm. So of course the wife would be the only thing that would be left there, you know. Yeah, yeah, and he—it's something that, or she would be something that he could help create, not something that was helping create him. Right. So. Yeah, he could be a little bit God as well here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very much like you know, God creates man, man creates woman kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Which, with uh, all the parts of that, and, and, and <laughs> you know, given me well, actually, let me ask you that. Do you think that was also something Mary Shelley was trying to comment on, especially this idea of like, of course, like, first of all, the very idea that Elizabeth and Victor would grow up and thus just by definition wind up in love and marry each other. Um, And we never hear a word about Elizabeth's agency in all of that. And also this idea that they could create another version of Frankenstein who would want to go off and marry him and be live, live, live happily ever after with him. And her agency is never considered in that. Is that just the times or do you think Mary Shelley's making an intentional point there? Hmm. It's always difficult to tell because one thing I've learned throughout my studies of, of you know, gender throughout history and, and ideology, gender mm-hmm. ideologies and, and discussions about that is that a lot of times we try to exert our own opinions about gender relationships from today yeah. onto what people were commenting on back then. And it wasn't necessarily always the case. Sometimes it was, yeah. but um, like Mary Shelley loved Percy. 
Yeah. I don't understand it, but but she loved him. And um, even when he wronged her, even when people gave him credit over her, Mm -hmm. she loved him. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for the fact that there are heavy rumors that she was also involved with women um, Mm -hmm. when their relationship was open. And um, so it's... It's difficult to tell whether or not she was commenting on that. I do think that an interesting fact of her writing is that two of her most popular books, Frankenstein and The Last Man, are from the perspective of men. Um, oh, interesting. Her most famous works aren't from the perspective of women. And I actually don't know if any of her works are from the perspective of women. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't really know what that says. Again, I've not read much into the you know yeah. literary criticism of that, but... I think it, it it says a lot maybe about how she viewed life. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, and that's what I expect. Like I said, kind of why I asked you is because, yeah, I want to believe Mary Shelley is this like uber proto-feminist in that regard, but it doesn't – like that kind of story of you'll grow up with your ward and you'll expect to be fall in love and married I know is very common of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it is you know always important to recognize like a story can be really progressive in some ways, but also in other ways just – be reflecting the, the 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 things that no one would think about, but today we would be horrified by. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Talk also about the book in terms of its um, like we we said about how it's science fiction, and I think it clearly is, and that it's a story. To me, at least, I've always thought of that part of science fiction is you posit a scientific possibility that doesn't exist in our own world and then ask questions about what would happen if that was true. You know, like, what if we could go to Mars? What if we could, you know, control the way people think or whatever it is? And in this, it's like, you know, what if we could do this thing? What if we could bring, you know, create life out of death? And so again, through my modern eyes, I want to look at this and go, well, this is written at the time when the Industrial Revolution is really taking off, when a lot of people in Mary Shelley's own England, but also throughout the world, but especially in England, are really horrified by scientific progress and the way, you know, all the, the smoke and the mills. And if you think about the poem New Jerusalem, uh, it's written at this, at this very time, um, you know, all about how England's green and pleasant land is being ruined by industry and, and a lot of the works about like what industry does to workers and stuff like that are happening. And so to me, it's very easy to read it in a – like the line that keeps coming to me is from Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park of uh, just because they could do a thing, they never asked if they should do a thing. And it feels like that's part of what Mary Shelley is saying is that part of Frankenstein's problem and his conceit is that he never actually asked, should I do this? And he never prepared for the potential consequences. How much of that do you think is accurate and how much of that is me wanting to read back into this sort of like – proto, you know, uh, scientific critique? Oh, I think it's it's very close. Um, so during this time, I actually have probably, I mean, it's starting to build up at this time. It didn't really get to its, like, true fruition until probably, like, 1828, 1830s. Um, you have this idea of the march of intellect, which is a direct mm. response to uh, the burgeoning technology of the time and the growing industrialization, like you said, urbanization, all this stuff. You have you have these these products that to us are like what even like that doesn't do anything but to them yeah. we're revolutionary and and we're changing like the very scope of things kind of similar to the way that ai is changing things today i i would say is is how these uh, in how industrialization yeah. was changing things at that time um and you have this this fear of what that will do, but you also have the fear of the upper classes that education is uh, going down the ladder, the social ladder. Education is being provided to people who it wasn't provided to in the past. And mm-hmm. uh, the part of the March of Intellect was also like what happens when when these people, when the not the right people have access to this education, to these means that, that are beyond them. And oh. and stuff like that. So this is all starting around this time uh, that Frankenstein is being written and published. Mm-hmm. And um, also at this time, you have grave robberies, which very very popular, and for scientific uh, furthering. <laughs> you know, like whether really? whether or not it's it's it was ethical, which it wasn't. I mean, you know, um, but. Mm-hmm. 
you have scientists or doctors who need to practice what they're doing and who, or who want to, to further their own education or want to further their own ego, uh, paying grave robbers to bring them bodies from graves, fresh bodies. Wow. And, um, like in, in my periodical that I studied, there were, uh, caricatures of this, of, of grave robbers sneaking into, to cemeteries and people used to camp out at freshly dug graves uh, people who, who whose family member had just died, they would camp out there for a few days to make sure that the body wasn't stolen, if they could do that, yeah. <laughs> um, if they could uh, sacrifice the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And any graves that weren't being protected, usually sometimes the body would end up being taken and sold to for whatever means it was being used for, usually scientists, Jesus. like I said. Yeah. And so the idea of... For Dr. Frankenstein taking fresh bodies, cutting them up, piecing them together mm-hmm. uh, is very reflective of the fear at the time of this. Like people didn't want this to happen and they were seeing it happen. And right. it, it was also this, um, they didn't understand what was being done with the bodies. And so they feared mm-hmm. it. And, and of course, like there's the whole ethical thing, like I said, is wrong anyway to do it without permission. <laughs> um, and, but still there was this whole other fear of like, what are they doing with it? What's, what's going to happen? And again, the right. periodical I studied, uh, there was a, in the same kind of series as the grave robberies, there was one where they, they show surgeons, um, surrounded by creations. So you have, you have like a, a dog with, another animal's leg or another animal's head mm. and they're all walking around and then it's kind of like what's next what are they going to do the humans next is a human on the table next so they're like what, are, what yeah. are they going to do with him and in my mind like all of this with the creation of of a of a new being is very reflective of the conversations that were yeah. happening around that at the same time well and it's funny how much that specific dynamic now the, like this book has put its stamp on that because it's just an example. A couple months ago, I have a car that's very beaten up that I decided I'm just going to drive into the ground. It's been totaled. Like the engine works fine, but the body is terrible. And I took it to a mechanic at one point. And the guy was like, yeah, look, I could replace a lot of those side panels that are damaged, you know? And, and what he said literally was they'd probably be different colors. So it looked like a Frankenstein of a car, but I could do it, you know, because what he meant was like, taking pieces of different entities and stitching them together to make something that looked okay, like giving a dog a leg from a different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fascinating how much that word has kind of entered our, our our idea. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if you – have you seen Poor Things yet with Emma Stone? No, I haven't. I've heard really good things. It's kind of uh, – I, I, I've not read the book, so I don't know um, exactly what Alistair Gray's uh, influence mm-hmm. was, but it does seem like uh, Frankenstein was an influence on – yeah. On that story as well. It's kind of similar things. I can see that. I can totally see that. And I want to talk about him becoming an influence on other things in just a second, but I just want to ask a little bit more about the kind of classist idea you were talking about of like we can't let those people get the science. Mm-hmm. Um this isn't meant as an attack on Mary Shelley, because again, creature of her times and all that, but it, are you saying you think that there is an element to that, that part of the idea is supposed to be that Frankenstein himself is not sort of like a classically educated noble bearing and so oh no no kind of, okay um, she's, she's being as a critique of that okay yeah yeah i don't i don't really think i don't think that because at the time the the surgeons who were doing this were well known and well renowned surgeons um who had mm. very big egos uh I, oh, I can't there there are some letters i've read of, of surgeons talking about what they're doing and just like they really did a lot of them viewed themselves as God uh, yeah. during this time where, where so little was known and so every discovery is like a it's a, it's a boost to your ego because no one knew it before yeah. Uh, but yeah usually it was all the ones I've read were about um, uh, well like well-renowned surgeons okay that makes sense well and certainly this idea of physicians who think they are God is is one that was Left long ago in the 18th century, so 19th century, so it's good not to worry about that anymore. Well, so let's talk about how differently this movie is now, this book is now understood. Because as I said, I think if you ask people what they visualize when they see Frankenstein, you know, they see the monster that's been stitched together. They see, you know, the the old European castle and the lightning bolt striking to like light everything up. 
They see the like, you know, kind of mumbling. It's kind of a zombie creature uh, that can barely speak, let alone be as eloquent as in this book. Um, and, and they call the creature Frankenstein. Um, where do you think all this comes from? How is it that the sort of popular media image that we've had for I think the first Frankenstein movie was made around like the early 1920s, so like almost a hundred years, um, if not probably more in terms of like stage plays and stuff, has gone so different from the book. You know, I really don't know. I don't I don't know what the first adaptation was that changed it so drastically. If it mm-hmm. was a movie, um, I imagine that they they needed they needed that that scare. They needed that thrill, especially right. when you know. I guess back when the first movie adaptation was made, it was very visual. Like relied heavily heavily on on the the visual aspect of it, and right. and so they needed something to do with that. And also, there's the in when would this be? Late eighteen hundreds, eighteen eighties, nineties. You have Penny Dreadfuls, mm-hmm. which are um, I don't know if anyone's seen the show Penny Dreadful. It is basically adapting that there were these little mini periodicals, like penny periodicals is what they were called. And they have stories in them, different stories. And a lot of them were, they weren't always this, but sometimes they'd be uh, scary stories, horror stories. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe some of those adapted Frankenstein or something similar to Frankenstein and yeah. and turned it into what we began to see more of in the 20th century, but mm-hmm. I don't know. You, it's one of those things where it's like people become so fascinated with the idea of this creation and become so afraid of it again. Like, I guess it fits yeah. in well if, when you think back to like the grave robberies and people being afraid of what was being done to those bodies, then it actually does fit in quite well with, with, with where yeah. Frankenstein comes from. It's just a different type of fear you have there, uh, a fear of, yeah. of the unknown of, of bringing someone back to life is is now viewed as like fearful instead of, or maybe viewing it the way Frankenstein viewed it instead of the way that Mary Shelley mm-hmm. viewed the process. Yeah. Well, and there's a weird sort of meta narrative there. I think of Mary Shelley's trying to write the story about how what we have what we visually think of as frightening isn't necessarily what we are scared of, or what we think of as frightening from what we first learn. Because yeah, I can very much understand it being like you know. What's more frightening than a sexually active or independent woman in the <laughs> early 19th century, let alone today? You know, what's more frightening than a woman who's writing about death instead of these, like, you know, nice uh, romances and things like that? Um, and so for it to then today be like, no, we, we very quickly go back to the scary thing is the monster, and that's what it's all about. And then so when Frankenstein shows up, it's this monster zombie kind of creature. Um, it, it's And I brought up Jurassic Park again. And I, I remember reading some things that Michael Crichton had talked about, the, the original author of the book, where he um, had said he was a little, some, like he loved the movie, obviously, and he, I'm sure he loved the paycheck the movie helped get him. <laughs> but that in his work, like the scary part is not supposed to be the dinosaurs themselves. It's supposed to be the scientists who created the dinosaurs without any thoughts to their ethical consequences. Yeah. And which I think, it, I mean, I've never actually thought about this before, but I think it is very much a Frankenstein story. You're bringing things back from the dead, quite literally. Uh, and in a book that can come across, but on screen, an ethical philosophical concept is never going to appear as scary as the 10 foot tall creature that's reaching out to get you, yeah. you know? And it's, it really feels like it's a, and that that happens all the time that you have. Um, another example I've talked about a lot in this podcast in recent episodes is the Gojira, the Godzilla movies, where not in terms of necessarily being scary, but the original concept of the movie was meant to be a story about post-war Japan and the atomic bomb and the horrible things the Americans did and coming to terms with the nuclear age. And then within like three or four movies, you're just getting movies of a guy in a rubber suit smashing buildings and being scary. And those are fun movies. But they've kind of completely missed the point. And I think it's, it's kind of a similar thing happens here. Yeah, I agree. I think that we started viewing um, Franken- Frankenstein's creation the way that Frankenstein viewed him. And mm-hmm. and then that just kind of became the new normal. And so like you said, it is quite quite meta that yeah. um, we 
it's almost like we're we're taking Dr. Frankenstein for his word at everything and now him view, mm-hmm. are viewing the story uh, through his biases instead of through a more philosophical and theoretical aspect. Um, yeah. But I just, uh, it's, it's still so fascinating to me that the monster has become known as Frankenstein. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, ironically, I think the, the adaptation that gets it the closest um, in terms of, of the, the longing there and the, the idea that this is your creation and you should love it is young Frankenstein. <laughs> Mel- Mel- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that. Um, I love that movie, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there is the whole idea, like, except he doesn't abandon him. So maybe, like, I feel like young Frankenstein is is the, like, what if of, of Mary yeah. Shelley's Frankenstein. What if Dr. Fra- Frankenstein hadn't abandoned his creation? What mm-hmm. would that have looked like? What if they'd had a loving relationship, a uh, father-son relationship or brotherhood relationship? And... Um, with a bit of comedy added to it. So. <laughs> uh, um, hold on, I'm looking up something quickly. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it is, in many ways, very much a more accurate um, retelling, even though it's very much satire. Although, again, it, it's like, I think in many ways, because it's the one I probably saw the most growing up, um, you know, child of a Jewish father living in New York <laughs> City, uh, where Mel Brooks was basically like a, a household god. Um you know, so the, the visuals of it, the black and white castle, the the mad scientist hair, the lightning, Igor, all of these things um, really strike me. And you're right. The In that, the, the, the creation, the monster is very lonely and is very sad. But what's interesting is that that's also where the like, I can only speak in mumbles and grumbles yeah. comes from. And granted, in the book, that is true at the beginning, but he learns to be incredibly eloquent within about two years. Um and I would actually say I think the only other version I've seen where I don't think we have ever really focused on who created this creature, though it's probably told in one or two stories, but a, a Frankenstein monster analog where I think its sadness and loneliness and sort of its being misunderstood is often dealt with um, is Solomon Grundy from the Batman uh, stories, particularly from Batman the Animated Series, where Grundy is an antagonist. But I think one of the things that really makes Batman so wonderful, especially in the animated series, is that he's often able to identify with his uh, with his villains. And particularly in terms of him feeling very much like an outcast because no one understands him and he's an orphan and all of this, he can really relate to Grundy. And granted, Grundy is still the very monosyllabic, uh, you know, not very smart, does what other people tell him to do and, and will do terrible things uh, unless someone stops him. But there's still a deep sympathy for the character in a way that feels very authentic to this part of the, this kind of telling of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I've never uh, really watched much of the Batman animated series, so don't really know much about that character. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the sympathy is always key for me. If it's not there, then it's just, it feels yeah. like it's just a, a story meant to scare you instead of a story meant to ask you to be a bit more introspective, which is why I always yeah. heavily recommend the plays. Because um, like I said, like, they're so good. And I think the Benedict Cumberbatch one you can get recordings of. Um, oh, can you? Okay. But they're so good. And I recommend watching, like, both, uh, like, two ver- the two versions of it. So when they mm-hmm. when they switch roles. It's just, it's amazing. It's it's incredible acting. It's incredible storytelling. Yeah. And the emotion is really there. And it's amazing what you can get different from different actors in it. And you get to yeah. see it in the same production, which is really cool. I have to say, I'm sure so much of it is good and probably award-worthy, but just from hearing about it, I hope many awards went to, or accolades at least, to the makeup and costuming department. Because <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine having to make up two, the, the same people for two different roles going back and forth every day, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, having, I'm sure, just two different sets of the same costume made and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting seeing Frankenstein and, and Frankenstein's creation in that, like in a more realistic mode and, and not right. the, not the, you know, elongated head kind of and, and mm-hmm. um, the screws and everything. It is really just, there's a, uh, his face is, is disfigured because it's, it's stitched together. And so there's right. like a long gash across, like diagonal gash across his face that's been stitched together there's a few 
gashes everywhere that have been also stitched together. And it's interesting to see it that way because I think it, it garners more sympathy in the viewer, which is interesting in itself and telling in itself. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting to compare that to the, the cinematic interpretations that we see. Yeah, no, very much so. I'd love to see that. Uh, and apparently it has been done on stage a number of times mm-hmm. in other versions too. Yeah. Two last just kind of questions about the setting itself, and then we'll wrap up and do some quick bonus content on a very different topic. Um, when, oh, what was I going to ask? Uh, so related to what you just said there about the, um, oh, uh, the first is when I think of, when I think of the Frankenstein story, because it is about bringing a creature back to life, I think today is very associated also with zombie stories. And like there's, there's, I've seen some like descriptions of like the, the zombie story has sort of two origins. One is the kind of mad scientist, Dr. Frankenstein kind of idea. And the other is the kind of um, uh, Caribbean spirituality, voodoo, what is often referred to as voodoo. That's an inaccurate term. Sort of like, I think very like, you know, anglicized and, you know, horrified versions of these, this folklore from Caribbean indigenous populations about, you know, raising the dead. Mm-hmm. Or, or in many cases, I think not uh, necessarily indigenous, but African slaves who were brought over and then mixed with indigenous stories. Um, to your knowledge, are, would, would awareness of those stories have gotten to someone like Mary Shelley by that point? Were they aware of like what a word like voodoo or, you know, the idea uh, or the word zombie or any of these kind of stories. I'm sure there have been stories of people coming back from the dead since, you know, time immemorial. But those kind of framings of the stories, do you know if that would have been a part of Mary Shelley's world at all? If it was, it would have been heavily, heavily Anglicized. Um, and mm-hmm. what I mean by that is is it would have been told through uh, British uh, interpretations of it. And from explorers or from colonizers, from um, military people, and it likely would have been heavily, heavily racist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm trying to think. I mean, you have like you have Afrobend who wrote. I forget what it's called. It's it's she wrote a book about an African man. And I Mm -hmm. think he was from slavery to freedom or something. And, um, and that was even that, even though it was, you know, there are arguments as to how well-intentioned it was meant, but, but even that is, is heavily, heavily racist, heavily stereotypical. And all of these stories, like they would get stories from the continent of Africa, from the, you know, South America and North America uh, about these people and about these communities, Mm -hmm. but they would not be told from those people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so to what extent, I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. and it might've come like, you know, like down the pipeline or something, but right. But yeah. And the other one is, and the other question I had for you, no, that totally makes a lot of sense. That's about what I expected. Um, and the other question I had for you is, again, we talked about this as modern science fiction, but it is, very different than I think what a lot of people think of as science fiction today, in part because the trope has grown and evolved and developed. And one of the things I think that might probably might throw people is um, there's very little actual science in the book. Like there isn't any actual description of like you have this chemical and that chemical or this doohickey or I've marshaled the power of the lightning or whatever. And I'm kind of curious to whatever you know, how much of that is just again? That was how you know because she was inventing a genre. There's nothing like else that was like it, and and when it is that the the need to not only say, oh hey, this cool scientific thing has happened, trust me and let me tell a story in that world, starts to become it's incumbent upon the author to explain the science to you and the pseudoscience in a way that you believe it. I think it's it's a product of its time in that. We didn't. Ha- they didn't have the information available to them of you know just right. randomly. Like we can Google, what do you need to do this scientific procedure? Right. How likely is this to happen? And you have someone's written an essay about it. Someone's written an article yeah. about it. Um, and there's pictures and diagrams and all this stuff. They didn't really have that back then at all. And if they did, right. in the form of you know actual written things, then that was heavily 
gatekept to mm. scientific journals or medical journals, um, to, to the people who went to university, who worked at university. Um, the University of Glasgow has a museum right. called the Hunterian Museum. And it's been around for hundreds of years. It was around during the early uh, 19th century. And at the time, it's, it's open to the public now. And back then, it was also open to the public, but it became so uh, busy because so many people were going. And it was it's a museum that has uh, uh, preserved, like, human organs and, 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 you know, quote unquote abnormalities that have happened in animals mm -hmm. and other things. And so it's very uh, kind of grotesque and, and appealing to people to see because they've never seen it before. And so this museum would be open to the public. It would become so busy that students, I guess, would complain that they didn't have access to it and they needed it. And so the first people they cut off from going were people in work clothes. And they had to pay wow. to get in. It wasn't free. So these work pe yeah. these people would, would save up their money to be able to afford to go for the afternoon or something. But they said, like, if you are in work clothes, you can't come in. And those were the first people not allowed in, even though people went mm -hmm. who weren't students who weren't also workers. And so they – but they right. got to keep going. And um, so you have – there's a lot of debate about what the – what was available to whom, because also at this time you have public lectures, public mathematics and science lectures that are being given and, and people of all genders and all backgrounds are allowed to attend. Um, but it again is kind of the same issue. The first people who get kicked out are the people who supposedly don't belong right. there in the first place. And so it just, it wasn't available the way it is today, but also I think there was more of a focus on telling the story, like getting to the to the yeah. heart of the story, like you said. I think you brought that up, rather than mm -hmm. than dealing with the the, the frilliness of yeah. of uh, this is exactly how it has to happen. Like it has to be believable. It didn't need to be believable for Mary Shelley. Yeah. It just needed. It was the means to tell a story, to tell the the yeah. actual story that she wanted to. Well, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about like this is just the beginnings of the scientific revolution and and the industrial, I guess, the industrial revolution and that kind of thing, in which, you know, mass understanding of science is still very small, and so the idea that most readers would would have any kind of knowledge of death and things like that, you know, in the way today it's like, oh, well. I watched a five-minute YouTube on aerodynamics so I can tell you why this space battle didn't make any sense, you know, in this in the Star Wars thing or whatever it is. Um, her, her other book, um, which I've studied a little bit more, The Last Man, mm -hmm. is about a global pandemic. <laughs> it was published in 1825 uh, and is about a, a disease that spreads and kills everybody except for one man at the very end. And... Mm -hmm. um, there's not really much. Ex there's a little bit of explanation about how it got passed on and everything. Yeah. But as far as like the, the details you would expect today, like today, I feel like we need to know everything. Like how did it, what, yeah. what, what, what's the scientific name of this disease? <laughs> what, you know, which scientists were working on it and all of this. So it, it's the same in that is she doesn't care and she doesn't expect yeah. the reader to care. She expects them to yeah. care about the, the heart of the story, the narrative. And, and I have to say as someone who has a, you know, liberal arts humanities love of science fiction that's perfect for me you know yeah. <laughs> like um when i watch star trek i want to engage in philosophical discussions over is data a living being that has sentience and thus has rights and whether his brain is neutrino or reverse neutrino or <laughs> you know whatever's neural patterns I, I just don't care about it. and i have total respect for those who are focused on those details and I think in some cases, the science details become very important. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to me, the the main thing that I think is, that I love about science fiction is its ability to to raise those questions. Uh, and, and with that, I want to just close. I'm going to give you a chance to say any last things you want to say. But I want to just close with one quick quote from the book that, that I thought was very interesting, given that it seems so clearly attempting to raise these kind of issues. Which And this is from the foreword by Mary Shelley, that any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical direction uh, – uh, uh, let me start again. And she's saying, like, this is what the book is not supposed to do. 
And one of the things she says is, what she ends it with is, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind. Uh, which I, I don't know if that's, again, just kind of a part of the style or if it's meant to be tongue in cheek or if it's meant to be a like, no, I'm just a little lady writing a book. But it, it, like she's saying, this is just a story. Don't think there's any philosophical arguments being made here. And that's clearly exactly not the case. Yeah, it, it was kind of a, a safeguard, I think. Um, it's like, like caricaturists a lot of times would be like, this isn't what it is. Like, we're not making fun of anybody. We're just, we're just telling a little joke. It's not, we're mm-hmm. not actually making any deep social commentary and when actually they were. And right. it's at that time, you kind of have like a, a thin line between what is just a book and what's rousing uh, too much interest in something or, or too much uh, anti- whatever is being discussed at the time that was important to the government or, or mm-hmm. to society. And, and so you do right. a lot of times have art, authors or artists um, have that little safeguard, just like, yeah, it's not doing yeah. any of this, even though it actually yeah. is. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling a story. Don't yeah. read too much into it. Chill out. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, Danielle, this has been fantastic as always. Any last comments you want to make about this work? Um, well, I do want to say I mentioned a book earlier called Mary or the Birth of Frankenstein, which is a fictionalized account of of her life around the time that she conceptualized mm-hmm. Frankenstein. It's by Anne Eckout, and I would highly recommend uh, if anyone's interested in a little bit more about Mary Shelley's life to read that. Again, it is fictionalized, so there are a lot of liberties taken, but it was really interesting to me, and it made me like want to go back and reread Frankenstein to to see if if if. Uh, seeing her story through this perspective, even though it's fictionalized, uh, made me mm-hmm. think of Frankenstein any differently. Yeah. No, I love that. And definitely, we'll have links to that work as well as hopefully if we can find the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Frankenstein, uh, a recording of it. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Uh, we'll have links to all the awesome things that Danielle does because she's been on this podcast a number of times. She's done a lot of writing. Um, her tweets and TikToks alone are definitely worth follows. You should definitely check that out. Um, and we want to know what you think. Let us know if you want to email us, contact us in any way. Uh, all the information in the show notes. We'd love your feedback. We'll discuss it on a later episode. Um, Danielle is first and foremost, as I understand her, a Star Wars fan, and we're going to have her on to talk about the Bad Batch uh, many times. The bonus content is going to be a little quick discussion about what we know about season three coming out soon uh, for those of you who are members. And if you're not a member, this is a great time to think about becoming one, uh, or I should just say a great time to become one. It's only $5 a month, $55 for 12 months. You get bonus content, you get ad-free content, and now we're recording entire episodes that are just for members. If you like book discussions... On the Star Wars Generation podcast, we're doing uh, whole episodes about Star Wars books. We're going to eventually start doing them about um, full books over on this side, too, probably. Uh, although we have a uh, couple other great book discussions coming up just for everybody. But we're going to keep putting out more and more bonus content just for members. So please think about becoming a member. It's a great way to support this podcast. Great way to support all the things we do. Um, for the members, thank you so much. And we will be back to you in a second. For everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. We have spoken. Run!